Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. China and the U.S. have been engaged in a trade skirmish for quite a while now, although there is a sign that perhaps these tensions are easing. Joining us now is Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Frontlines of Global Finance, uh, helped broker some of the biggest deals, uh, both at a sovereign and corporate level over the past decades in which he's been active. He's joining us here in our interactive broker studios. So, Bill, you just got back from China. Do you get the feeling that there is a thawing in the tensions between the U.S. and China from the Chinese perspective? Well, first of all, Lise, I want to thank you and Tim for inviting me. It's uh, my favorite program. So uh, anyway. The love is mutual. It was was a very interesting week I spent there, and particularly with the trade tensions. Uh, There's no doubt that China wants to come to an agreement because the Chinese economy is slowing down. They have this mountain of debt of over 300 percent of, of, of gross national of, of GDP gross national product and they have a lot of stresses there on manufacturing is down and so no matter what they say in the sense of tough talk they want to do a deal it's not going to be in 90 days but I think we'll see some progress we already saw the automobile tariffs uh, and I think we're going to see other things going forward but it's not going to be solved overnight the basic problem between the United States and China will not be trade going forward because I think something can be worked out. I think it's going to be intellectual property. That's going to be a tough one, and I've said this on on your program uh, before. As far as the Chinese economy is going itself, they'll make their six-and-a-half projection for this year, but next year is going to be a tough year for them because they need to continue financial reform, which means reining in the bank's bad loans, uh, you know, the municipality bad loans and the provinces bad loans, and they have to shut down some of these small regional banks in northeast China, which uh, basically are zombie institutions. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Chinese economy next year. Uh, they hope they can get 6%, but it could fall below 6% for the first time ever. Bill Rhodes, you have negotiated during your career with dictators, strong men as well as corporate executives and government officials and central bank regulators. Who are the key people in China right now? Well, obviously, uh, you start off with the president and leader, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, His vice president is very strong uh, because he is is an expert on economics, Wang Shishan. Uh, He's also was a trouble uh, shooter for previous governments. He's the one who cleaned up SARS in Beijing. He's the one who cleaned up the problems in Guangdong province. He's a, a, a disciple mentory of, of Zhu Renji, the great premier of China, who cleaned up their economy and got him into the WTO. But also, the head of the People's Bank of China is very important. We have a technician in there, and I was privileged enough to, to, to spend an hour and a half alone with him at lunch. Uh, Yi Gang, his name is. He actually taught at the University of Indiana for... Yeah. Uh, eight years, so his English is as good as ours. And the previous governor of the People's Bank of China, Zhou Xiaoxuan, who's a leading reformer, 
who still, although he does not have the official position in the People's Bank of China, he has the title, uh, you know, President Emeritus there, and he's advising uh, both uh, the president, Xi Jinping, and uh, Wang Qishan. And then there's one other person who has the title Vice Premier uh, of the Economy, and that's uh, uh, someone named, uh, who's new, that in the sense that we didn't see him before, and that's, his name is Li Hu. And he's the one who's talking with Mnuchin on the telephone. Yeah. The big problem, among others, that the Chinese have with us, they don't know who's on first, second, and third in negotiation. It's like tinkers to ever is a chance. Well, one minute's on- Lighthizer, the next minute is Mnuchin. Uh, they're confused. Well, they're they're confused about who's on first, but also you you know sort of the distinction between the trade tensions and intellectual property is confusing to me because I don't totally understand how intertwined those are. Well, I think for the United States it's very important because the Chinese announced their program of 2025, which was their goal to be the leading uh, <clears throat> innovators in, in technology in the world. And, of course, that gets into 5G and all of these things. And the United States, Silicon Valley, forever we've been the leaders uh, in technology. And so the feeling is that there's a real challenge to us. Also... Uh, there's also a feeling here in the United States and in Europe that the Chinese have gone out of their way to gain technology through several different ways. One, when an American or European uh, company wants to operate up in China uh, on a joint venture, they make them turn over their intellectual property. The other thing is many people in the U.S. and uh, Europe feel the Chinese have been stealing technology from us. So uh, this question of intellectual property is going to be tougher to solve than the trade issue. Because let's face it, the economy is slowing down in China, the economy is slowing down here. And so I think it's on both, you know, uh, both governments, I think, want to come to a deal. All right, Bill Rhodes, he is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. Oil definitely having a trickle-down effect on broader markets over the past week or so. Uh, The three days ended yesterday, it comprised the biggest drop in the uh, in the oil index and the oil price since 2016. Joining us now to understand what's been driving the big moves we've been seeing there, John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital. So, John, let's just start there. What is the main driver behind the declines that we've seen in the price of crude? Well, relative oversupply uh, to the market, uh, partly because sanctions that were supposed to go on Iran didn't really come to pass, and so they're still producing, and Saudis and Russians rushed production uh, onto the market to make up for what was supposed to be lost barrels. And then now the economic slowing that we're seeing, particularly uh, in China, in Asia, uh, has uh, weakened the demand side of the equation. So it's sort of been a one-two punch here uh, for the oil commodity. John, who are the sellers and are they forced sellers? Well, I'll tell you, Pima, a big speculative long position did get built up into this market um, right around the highs in October there when we were up around over $70 a barrel for WTI. Based upon the CFTC data that we get to see every Friday, uh, they've been washed out. 
And yes, there's been rumors of uh, of forced hedge fund liquidation um, and uh, and a growing uh, bearish positioning in this market in that there's uh, net short sellers uh, in here now, too. So sentiment has really turned uh, quite negative at this point, um, and it remains so. One thing that I'm struggling with is Saudi Arabia just came out with their uh, budget for next year. And I'm struggling with the idea that they are assuming $80 a barrel for the price of uh, crude next year in order to make their budget work. And they would need a price uh, upwards of $90 a barrel in order to balance their budget. Does that concern you? Um, if anything, it, um, you know, it, it shows me that they have a real incentive to uh, follow through on the, uh, o- the OPEC-Russia accord that was struck a couple of weeks ago. I think they're feeling a little flush with success because of what they were, they were able to achieve in the aftermath of the November 2016 deal. Uh, this whole thing just fell apart uh, over the summer, again, because of the real almost trick that was put on the market with the Iran sanctions. So I, I guess they believe they can do it again. I also think they have borrowing capacity, so they're not going to worry about it. But they also have home fires to uh, to tamp down here. There's, there's some unrest in the kingdom. Uh, no better way to placate that than to uh, you know give away some money, which is which is what this budget does in a big, big way. Lots of extra money to government workers and others that uh, should help uh, uh, keep the, uh, you know, Waters calmer, calm there uh, as as we move forward here. Almost on cue, by the way, the uh, Saudi the Saudi oil minister this morning was all over the wires trying to talk up the price, uh, committing to a, a big cutback and and extending this deal next April when they all meet again. So um, they're trying to uh, do everything they can to support this price for sure. John, speak if you can about U.S. shale producers. At what price do shale producers? Stop making money. You're getting into that zone now, Pam, you know, particularly when you sort of add in all the costs, not just the pure, say, drilling and extraction uh, methodologies. It's going to start to get tough for them uh, right now. But they have been successful, many of them, particularly in the, uh, in the Permian Basin, where they've driven break-even costs down to around 35 to $40 a barrel. Now, some of those numbers are all over the place. So they're going to try to hang in there. Um, and I know there's a lot of concern, too, about the indebtedness of the group. Uh, I'll tell you, when the last iteration of this uh, price is crashing back in 2016 era, um, what the banks basically did was uh, extend the loans, recapitalize the loans, and, and repackage the loans. So uh, I'm not as worried about the group falling apart this time, unless we were to get another sort of extended sell-off down into the uh, say mid to low 30s, but uh, it's hard to see that happening. John, every time you've been on, you've been incredibly accurate, and I've been impressed by some of your forecasts. So what's your sense of where oil heads... Uh, I don't know, throughout next year. It's a, I have to say it's a, it's a tough call uh, right now. I've been uh, trying to shake up the Magic 8-ball vigorously um, these days. But uh, my, my inclination is to, as the guys in the bond or guys and gals in the bond market say, don't fight the Fed, I'm inclined not to fight Saudi Arabia. Uh, so if they do come through with the extensive cuts that they're talking about, Prices should head back higher, and because also because sentiment has just gotten so negative in this market that there's a tendency to overshoot here in commodities especially, and we should swing back. So I would expect us to, to be back into the, you know, at least low 60s, say, by, by mid-year next year. All right. Thanks very much, John Kilduff, founding partner, Again Capital, speaking about the world of oil.
And the topic now is the housing market. Sales of previously owned U.S. homes rose for a second consecutive month and exceeded forecasts in November. It suggests that consumer demand is picking up as price gains moderate. Here to tell us more, Daryl Fairweather, Chief Economist for Redfin Corp, joining us from Seattle. Daryl, thank you very much for being with us. Do you believe that the sales of previously owned U.S. homes, that this rise will continue? The market right now is much different than it was earlier this year. Earlier this year, we had really fast price growth, especially in coastal markets like San Francisco and Seattle. Prices were growing in the double digits year over year, and that has moderated since earlier this year. Now price growth is more around 4%, and it's actually taken a while for sellers to get the news that buyer demand isn't what it used to be. So we've seen fewer bidding wars, more price drops, but I think finally sellers are starting to get the message, are dropping their prices, and that's why we've seen sales tick up this month. So, Daryl, do you, can you just give us a sense of why there has been a slowdown in the U.S. housing market? Is it an interest rate story? Is it just a demand story, or is it a supply story? I think the story here is affordability. So prices were growing, and they were growing very quickly, and recently interest rates went up at the same time, and buyers just finally had enough. They couldn't keep raising their prices and keep paying these high prices, getting the same homes. So we've seen buyers back off, and as a result, sellers are starting to drop their prices and meet buyers at their, at their price reservation. Do you expect mortgage rates to continue to decline? It's interesting. So mortgage rates follow both supply and demand. So on the supply side, the cost of borrowing is higher. And if the Fed raises interest rates today, the cost of borrowing will continue to rise for the people who are supplying these mortgages. But at the same time, we've seen uh, mortgage rate demand fall because people are buying fewer homes now than they were last year. It'll be interesting to see which of these uh, forces uh, end up uh, dominating. So We could see a rise in interest rates and on mortgage interest rates, but if buyers back off, then maybe that'll be mitigated. So which areas of the market do you think are still poised for significant price increases? I mean, are there regions or there sectors of the housing market that still have upside that are that's significant? Yeah, so places like Nashville, um, Atlanta, Austin, some of these inland markets, that's where we'll see more buyer demand grow. And that's because people are moving towards more affordable places. We have this migration data at Redfin where we can see where people are searching for homes based on their IP address. And we see uh, increasing number of people searching for homes in more affordable places, especially in really expensive places like San Francisco or Seattle or Washington, D.C. They're looking to move inland. What do you believe institutional owners of real estate will face in 2019? I think that, so there, do you mean by institutional owners companies or do you mean like a typical investor? No, no, a, a companies, you know, the institutional right. uh, part of the market. Right, right. So we have Redfin now, and there are other institutional owners um, like Open Door and Zillow has their own institutional owners. Um, they are going to have to change their strategy. Uh, buyers previously, they may have seen an offer from an institutional owner and thought this was a really good price, but institutional owners may have to lower their price, and uh, sellers may. Uh, not want to accept those prices, thinking that the market hasn't changed as much as these institutional owners think the market has changed. So, Daryl, where do you see prices declining the most, regionally or uh, in a specific sector? 
So the places that where they saw the most price growth, we're going to see that price growth slow. I don't think that price growth will necessarily go negative. Um, but in places like Seattle and San Francisco, that price growth is not going to be what it was earlier this year or in 2017. We're going to see price growth slow. But that's interesting to me. You don't see it actually going negative. That's well, so, different than a lot of people, actually. Um Prices have fallen from earlier this year. Some of that is seasonality. The prices have dropped more than just a seasonal effect in places like Seattle and San Francisco. But come spring, prices may be exactly where they were last spring, maybe a little bit higher. Uh, there's a possibility that it may be lower than they were last spring, but I think that's uh, small a small possibility. Since you're coming to us from Seattle, can't avoid asking the question having to do with Amazon.com and new headquarters. Mm -hmm. What does this mean for those areas? We think prices might go up, but what does it also mean for housing prices in Seattle? Yeah, so I actually used to work for Amazon before I came to Redfin, and I had coworkers who uh, were tracking where the HQ2 was going to go and thinking that they were going to move back home or be close to family, depending on where it went. I actually have one friend who, uh, whose mom was calling her the day that they announced in Washington, D.C., asking her if she was going to move back home. So I think we'll see um, some Amazon workers in Seattle put their homes up for sale to move to these new locations because there are all these new jobs and a transfer is pretty easy. In the actual places where the headquarters are going, home prices will be affected. Um, it'll kind of depend on the transportation that is around those areas. So in a place like Crystal City, that's slightly outside the city center, we'll probably see uh, housing demand grow the most in the suburbs that are far away from D.C. but relatively close to Crystal City. So if your commute is going from an hour commute to a half-hour commute, that's where we'll see demand uh, go up the most. Daryl Fairweather, thank you so much for being with us. Daryl Fairweather is chief economist for Redfin. Uh, interesting to be getting uh, more signs of stability in the U.S. housing market and a more sanguine view of what's to come. In the meantime, I want to turn our attention to uh, the information that big tech reveals about its users to uh, other companies and profit from it. And joining us now is Mark Douglas, chief executive of Steelhouse. Mark, uh, thank you so much for being with us. The New York Times put out a story that was really eye-opening of how Facebook collected data from its users and shared them with other big companies such as Amazon, uh, profiting from it without necessarily disclosing this. What did you make of that article? Um, well, it's not good. <laughs> that's, for sh that's for sure. I think it's clearly part of a pattern that Facebook's definition of personal information and the common consumer and certainly government, you know, kind of Euro, Euro government and now U.S. government definition of, pri of personal information are very different. And Facebook um, viewed that information, like you just said, as something they could they, they could sell and they could profit for and they can provide to partners. And, um, I, you know, it's it's just not a great pattern that they've established and now is even more is coming light with the story. Mark Douglas, do you believe this to be an intentional effort on the part of Facebook to obscure what actually happened? Or is this something that, as they describe many times, the technological wherewithal in order to follow all this may not be available? Well, I think essentially 
this is based on the reporting from the New York Times. This was intentional. This wasn't a data breach. This wasn't accidental. Facebook provided information to partners in order to benefit those partners' businesses and for Facebook to benefit. Ultimately, the reason they're doing it is because they don't think there would be a backlash from the users. And quite frankly, there hasn't been much of a backlash from the users. Although Facebook usage is down, Instagram usage is is continuing to expand rapidly. And at the end of the day, you know, these stories come out and people just keep using these platforms and and somewhat yawn about them. And so as long as that's the case, Facebook, I I think now there's such a spotlight on them that they have to restrict those actions, but they didn't have that spotlight when this was occurring. And so so they had no incentive not to do it, you know. But but Mark, I mean, to push back a little bit, exactly the point that you're making, that users don't care, that they're willing to go along with this contract of getting free access to platforms that connect them with their friends and give them access to news in or in return for giving up some of their privacy. So where does the problem come in? Well, the the problem comes in in that the the governments are not agreeing with the consumers using the platforms. You know, the 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 EU, the Euro- European Union clearly doesn't agree with all the laws they've been passing. And the U.S. government seems to be somewhere in the middle. We have hearings, but then there's no legislation. And so the, and, and again, the reason that's probably occurring is because the, the, the senators and congressmen are not, are, are not getting, you know, kind of a huge consumer backlash on this. And I think consumers, you know, they think of this like, okay, so my friend list was shared with Spotify and I got better music. Again, it, what you just said, they think it's a quid pro quo. And, um, but I think ultimately this hurts Facebook. I think the big, big problem Facebook's going to have, it's going to be, I think it's going to be very hard for them to make acquisitions. Um, everything they do is going to be scrutinized going forward. And I think this is starting to put it over the top. This is a just clear disclosure of information without disclosing it to the consumers that, that provided the information. Mark Douglas, this comes at a time when the government has received investigations and reports about the use of platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, as part of an effort on the part of the Russian Internet Research Agency to manipulate what people see and access online. Is that in any way connected based on the culture that you know about Facebook? Uh, No, I don't think that's in any way connected. I think that what that proves is that Facebook's ultimate business is they are an advertising platform to reach the consumer, the 2.2 billion users reaching Facebook, the over a billion users using Instagram, over a billion users using WhatsApp. And it's a very effective advertising platform. And essentially, the Russian government figured out that they could, you can sway elections. You can, you can not only use it to sell clothes, you could use it to sell presidents. And the, and they did that. I'm, I'm, I can't say that the, the Russian government led to the current president's election, but clearly there was a lot of that spending going on to, to try and influence it. And so this is the quandary that, that we're in. The, the platforms are very fun and useful, Facebook, Instagram. They're super effective advertising platforms, and there's not a lot of controls on either one of those. And, you know, Facebook is imposing controls on themselves, but 
but they're doing it because of the scrutiny that they're under, not because of what appears to be kind of any um, clear standard that they had in place at the time. Thanks very much for being with us. Mark Douglas is the chief executive of Steelhouse based in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.